Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is the definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed his dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? Uh, I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing all right. Uh, We are continuing our epic, multi-parted, unmade Batman series, joined by our guests, Pat Casey and Ed Greer. How are you guys? I'm doing well. This is Pat. Doing great. This is it. <laughs> He's doing better than me. Uh, so we are just going to pick up right where we left off in the previous episode. So they go to the prison where the, Gordon and all the cops are there too. And Ubu pulls up with a truck like that the back opens up and there's a Howard Center in it. And he just starts blowing giant holes in the walls of the prison and then jumps out and starts giving guns to all the all the cons who run out. They also note that there's like a bunch of cons get like killed by the cannons inexplicably after most of this movie is so bloodless robin jumps out and is excited to fight them and says this is the way to spend semester break to heck with fort lauderdale 
So while Robin brawls <laughs> with the escaping prisoners, Batman chases Ubu. Oh, and I wanted to note also that like he does a lot of swinging in this movie, actually, which is something I always missed from like the Burton Batman movies, really, is that he like never swings. But in this one, he'll like shoot a line, but then he always takes a second to like tug on the rope to make sure that it's actually caught on something before jumping, which is obviously what you would always do in real life. But Batman never does that yeah. in comics <laughs> or animated movies or whatever. He's too good. He knows. <laughs> so Batman catches up with Ubu and tells him that the cops are all there, which I would have thought Ubu would have seen. And like the prisoners are all going to be rounded up. Your plan failed. But Talia knocks Batman out. And then Ubu's going to kill Batman, but Talia stops him. Like, and Ubu's like, but your father said to kill him. He's like, yeah, but I'm here. He's like, I work for your father. And uh, so then to stop him, Talia like kicks his ass with Kung Fu. And then Batman wakes up. Talia like kisses Batman and tells Batman Ra's al Ghul's whole plan, which is if he can't take over the city, he's going to like use nuclear blackmail, threatening to blow up the Six Mile Island nuclear plant. The one thing in New York that they changed the name of from Three Mile <laughs> Island to Six Mile Island. But also reveals that the that Raz's base is inside Mount Rushmore. So Batman says, the next time I see you, I'm taking you in. And he basically just walks away from them, I think. Uh, Bye. So Batman, <laughs> we go to Commissioner Gordon's office, and Gordon and Batman both make fun of Robin for being all beat up from his brawl with the prisoners. Uh, Gordon's like, we figured out where Lincoln, Washington is. There's Lincoln County in Washington State. We've got the feds crawling all over the place. And Batman's like, don't be an idiot. He doesn't say those words. <laughs> but basically, he insults Gordon. It's like, it's actually in Mount Rushmore. As though he Dummy. fucking figured it out, even though Tali <laughs> yeah. had literally just told, told it to him. him. He didn't solve a goddamn thing. <laughs> he doesn't do any detective work in this. He only ever calls like Vicky and has her tell him what to do, you know? Uh, so they, they have to rush over to the nuclear plant. They get caught in traffic, but there's he pushes a button in the Batmobile. But Robin's like, we've never tested that button that causes the Batmobile to like rear back and like launch the cockpit out like a rocket. So they fly to Six Mile Island in the bat rocket and the cops are already there and basically like the, the other cops are like we should just start shoot barge in and start shooting everyone willy-nilly and gordon's like you idiots look it's batman and robin and batman and robin come flying in with like bat wing-esque hang gliders with batman and ubu have like a classic western showdown on like a catwalk over the nuclear reactor Batman, oh, because from when they studied the gun earlier, he'd built a, another gun that would neutralize that gun. So Batman shoots the gun with his other gun, and then they just fight. Uh, Ubu has Batman beat, basically, but he trips over the gun and then falls to his doom inside the nuclear reactor. <laughs> Talia is also there, and she tries to blow it up by throwing a, a grenade into it, but Robin just grabs it and throws it straight up instead, so it's fine. Uh, we cut to Roz back at his base that he never leaves. He gets word that Ubu is dead and Tali is captured. And he like opens Jefferson's big giant eye, which is a window, and sees a huge army gathered outside with Batman and Robin on horseback leading the army. Daytime, I wanted to note. We cut to outside. Gordon's there too. And the army can't attack yet because they don't have permission from the government. Gordon's like, this country is hanging itself with red tape. <laughs> then we get a call from the president giving them permission to blow up Mount Rushmore. Uh, just as Raz, the mouths of the pre president's all open and have giant guns in them that they start shooting at the army as Batman and Robin like ride their horses through the explosions like World War One shit. 
Talia is suddenly inexplicably at the base. Uh, noses come out of, or sorry, ropes come out of Jefferson's nostrils and Talia and the other commandos try to escape by shimmying down the rope. But Batman and Robin are already climbing up from the bottom. Batman catches Talia and carries her back up. And she once again makes an appeal. She's like, there's still one escape craft. We could fly off together, be together forever. And I was like, I could never trust you, but I'll give you a one hour head start. So she runs away. Roz comes out with like two bejeweled swords and tosses one to Batman so they can just duel, which is kind of the classic Bat. Comics image of Roz and Batman is dueling with, with, with bejeweled swords. But here it felt extremely unmotivated since they never <laughs> Um. Yeah, Roz is actually winning this one too, but then Batman kind of pulls the old Ole move with his cape, causing Roz to like fall out through the hole in the nose and he falls to his doom. Gordon comes in like, we got them all except for Roz and his daughter. Batman's like, Roz is dead. Gordon's like, what about the girl? Batman just grims silence. And we cut to Tali as a ship exploding out of Lincoln's hair lifts off the mountain. Like every piece of Mount Rushmore is like a big mechanical <laughs> trap door. Like Castle Grayskull. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she flies away and Gordon's yelling at Batman about how he fucked this up when he realizes Batman is already gone. Pulled a Batman. But the <laughs> soldiers are like, who is he really, sir? Gordon's like, he's a man like you or me, soldier. He's not faster than a speeding bullet. He's not more powerful than a locomotive, and he's not able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, but he's the world's greatest superhero, the Batman. (laughs) And then we cut to the Batjet flying away with a graphic that says Batman and Robin will strike again in Beware the Blockbuster. The Blockbuster (laughs) is a significantly lesser Batman villain who later became a major Nightwing villain, but at the time, I feel like he was really a nobody. I've never even um, heard of that villain. <laughs> I haven't either. He's like Nightwing's arch nemesis some of the time. The terrible name. <laughs> He's the like Blockbuster video. I mean, he was fully a Hulk ripoff at first, and then at some point he also became super smart, and now he's just like, he, now he's more like the Kingpin, really. Mm-hmm. Kingpin I destroy off. mom and pop video stores <laughs> and have a mediocre selection of back catalog genre titles. You can <laughs> defeat me with streaming. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that was the movie. What do you, wow. what do you guys think? Uh I, I'm well, you know, with all these, it's always kind of like it'd be fun, I guess, if that movie existed to watch. But unlike Spider-Man, I definitely feel like if any of these movies had gotten made, they wouldn't have made the Tim Burton one. Um, yeah. It yeah. Been, this one. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't like it's weird all over the place tone. Uh, I was almost I, you know, I didn't know what to expect from this, but I was almost hoping as is often the case with 70s stuff that it was going to be like too serious, you know, like we're just going to make a fucked up Batman. Well, it's like the sort of anti red tape thing is sort of dirty, hairy ass, but without any of like the real violence or like, you know, it's more just like, he's like not, you know, he's avoiding like city ordinances, you know, to like, (laughs) but he's still just a cop really. Well, I mean, the, the thing the thing uh, that I take away from this movie is, OK, for a first time or like not a first time, but like for a, a very novice screenwriter, it seems like to uh, have a, a unifying theme of the red tape jazz uh, <laughs> uh, and B have this whole like 
obsession. Useland seems to have an obsession with if if he's not super, why is he better than cops? That we find this over and over again with these Batman scripts. Like, if he's not super, why is he better than cops? And all these scenes that are meant to like show exactly why he's needed, what you know, all that jazz about red tape and this and that. It's just like you can do what they cannot do. It's, it's they're obsessed with that idea because I think at that time you would almost feel that the audience would need that explained. Yeah, they got to like justify his existence. Yeah, like yeah. the villain stuff, they spend so much time on Ubu and his henchmen doing all this stuff. Like it was like he was like, what would you really have to do to like conquer Gotham and make it your kingdom? Like he really thought about that, like too hard, probably. Um, even though the Talia stuff's unbelievably cheesy, I kind of enjoyed it, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I also think that like for kids, I think they'd want to see a more popular villain also. You know, I mean, yeah, the comic fans know who the villain is, but, you know, I think everyone else is going in there to expect like a Joker or a Penguin or, you know, yeah, they the classic the Joker and yeah, the Catwoman, the Catwoman, as everyone always calls her. But yeah, it, it that felt like really like being too self-conscious about the 60s show of like, we can't do any of mm-hmm. the classic villains that were on the show. Um which was yeah, like most sense. of the, the rogues gallery, all the good ones were on the show. Uh, You're right. That totally does make sense. You know, trying to separate as much as possible from that. And I and maybe I like, like, oh, sorry, Steve. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I like the Dirty Harry comparison. That makes sense, too, you know? Yeah, I guess I, I, I'm a little harsh on this purely because hypothetically, I would be so excited if some if there was a script out there of someone trying to do a real 70s, the fact that it has the dirty, hairy attitude towards cops and that they're doing Raza Ghoul during the era of the like, you know, oil crisis stuff that was happening. And just, you know, not like I want some sort of real racist version of Raza Ghoul, but I mean, even like with the Raza Ghoul we got in the Chris Nolan one, you know, because I know that character purely from the animated show and it was so fun how it was always like off in the desert somewhere. And, you know, it just, yeah, that was an excuse for them to do like Indiana Jones yeah. type globe trotting adventure. Uh, uh, it would have been fun if someone had a- attempted a seventies version using all those more seventies ideas, I guess. Yeah. The, the James Bondiness of it too, because it feels like it's mm-hmm. kind of trying to be James Bond, but yeah, James Bond is also always globe trotting. And it's like, Batman is so identified with Gotham. I also get why you'd be like, well, he's got to be protecting Gotham, but it's like, I could have maybe lived with him. Yeah. Tra- yeah. Traveling around the world and doing some stuff. Well, it just seems weird to use Raza Ghoul, who's a more international Batman villain for a story that's purely about Gotham. And his base is inside the symbol of America. Why isn't his boss in, his base inside the Sphinx or something? You know. Yeah, it's bringing me back to that volcano layer, and um, you only live twice. If that's the right movie, I'm thinking. Or Batman of. meets Godzilla. But see, I, I think you guys are 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 overthinking it. Yes, there's, we are. There's a, there's an invasion. No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with you because I love oh, it. Oh, guys, uh, no, it, it's it's an invasion of America. You know what I mean? He, mm-hmm. he sets up inside this, like you said, the symbol of America or one of the symbols of America. He, I guess he could have been in, you know, the, the, the basement of the White House or something. I don't know. But uh, so he's infiltrated America and he wants to. It's, it's funny to me that this whole 
I will take the crown jewel of the world, which is for some reason Gotham. That survived all the way to the Nolan verse. This whole like Rachel Ghoul's first thing is to cripple Gotham to show the world something. What? Like it, 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 that seems so weird, seeing as how it's not necessarily New York. But in this, I feel like in the Nolan one, wasn't he trying to destroy Gotham just because that's like their job? And now in the League of Shadows, like destroys like a decadent city that no, like that we did it to Rome and all that stuff, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just saying they find they find a way to focus this world travel guy, as uh, as Reed Rothschild would say from Boogie Nights, this this world travel guy is obsessed with this one city for some reason. And, and that one, that's the reason they provide. So yeah, you're right, dude. I mean, it does feel like also bat like Gordon or, or Batman was complaining about the politics too. It's like, why is everyone this Watergate, all this stuff about politics, but then, yeah, it's like, it's all kind of just like demonizing this well, yeah, like well, OPEC, like that opening foreign scene oil where he raises like the good guys are the bad guys and the bad <laughs> guys are the good guys. Or I mean, that's such a like dirty hair at, Dirty Harry era uh, kind of white American complaint too, right? Mm-hmm. The post Miranda rights of just like yeah. everything. Everyone so always mixed used to up. love it when I abuse minorities, but now yeah. they say it's bad. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. Hey, these people are too woke. Uh, that, that's, what it, that's what it would sound like woke right Bob now. Coming after Batman, <laughs> trying to cancel the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, wait, should we move on yeah, to the yeah. next thing? Yeah, well, thanks. What for happened next, that. Steve? Yeah, you- all right. Uh, go, going back to 1978, the top movies, by the way, uh, Greece was number one with 159 million. Superman wow. was number two with 134. Damn. Good job, Greece. Animal House was number three with 120. Just so mm. go back to that. All right, so November 1979, um, Bell. Uh, ben Melnicker reaches out to producers John Peters at, Casava- at Casablanca Filmworks, headed by Peter Gruber. And so people, so people know that. Um, oh, so Bell Melnicker was telling Mike Uslan, uh, like years back, you know, at MGM, they interviewed Peter to work there, and he's a lot younger than these other execs they've been dealing with. He's more hip and he might get this new approach with Batman that they want to do. So they go to Casablanca and their biggest successes up to date was the deep, which was uh, Peter Benchley's follow-up to Jaws, the writer. And it was one of the top 10 highest grossing movies in 1977 and made 50 million. And they also really? made midnight express in 1978 where uh, Oliver Stone won best screenplay award and it won for best score. And so they met with those cats, uh, Gruber and Peters, and Uslin showed them some Batman comics, Detective Comics 27, um, Batman number one, Night of the Stalker, Night of the Reaper, and they they dug it. They totally got it. And they started discussing possible writers and directors. And they all agreed that a picture of this size packed with action all of a sudden they thought James Bond films, it makes sense. So, so let's go after a James Bond writer. So they went after the first writer they went after was Richard Maybaum. And so people don't know Richard Maybaum wrote Dr. No from Russia with love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, her majesty's secret service, diamonds are forever. The masterpiece, the man with the golden gun, spy who loved me. 
And Wait, was that you just editorializing? Yes, yes. I love Gold that movie. So, uh, <laughs> Steve I'd just lo- loves Hervé Villachez. <laughs> that movie. So, yeah, so they go after him. I'm not sure if he ever wrote a draft, to be honest. So, but And so at the same time, they also brought it to Universal Pictures who turned it down. And so now we're going to 1980. And so now they approach a director. They approach Guy Hamilton, who's another James Bond director. He directed Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and once again, the masterpiece, The Man with the Golden Gun. (laughs) And so here's an interesting thing about Guy Hamilton. Um, He was the first director of Superman the movie. But when the movie was spiraling out of budget in Italy, they had to take the project out of Italy and move it to England. But Due to being a tax exile, you can only spend like 30 days at a, at a time there a year. He had to bail out of the movie. And so that's when. Wait, because he's English, but he couldn't be in England or they would be able to tax his, his money. Something like that. He said he, due wow. to being tax exile. <laughs> there was a documentary uh, I watched. Um, I forgot what it was called. And um, they explain it in there. Yeah. You can only spend 30 days a year in England. So he was not allowed to make the movie. It seems crazy that it was cheaper to shoot in England than Italy. I would have a hundred percent assumed it was the other way around. Yeah. Something at the time when they were about to shoot the movie, something happened in Italy and it was getting too expensive. So they had to move the production to England. It was uh, weird. And I want to see a spaghetti Batman movie so yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was for Superman, the movie. Yeah. So he had to leave Superman, the movie. He was the original director. And then and he did test footage and, you know, worked on the Fortress of Solitude. And then that's when Superman, the movie hired Richard Donner to direct it. And so because they saw the omen and like, this guy's good. I'm sorry. So that's a little Superman side note. So Guy Hamilton was the original director for Superman, the movie. So they thought, hey, maybe it'll be and he's a James Bond director. So he'd be perfect for this Batman movie. But unfortunately, time passed and it, it drifted away from Guy Hamilton. And so they went after Freebie and the Bean director, Richard Rush, wow. because that. Well, because at the time, his new film, The Stuntman, was coming out. And oh. I didn't realize that The Stuntman was kind of nominated for, I think he was nominated for Best Director for that. And it like was nominated for like uh, Best Drama for the Golden Globes. I didn't realize I mean, The how... Stuntman's a very cool movie, but didn't he like basically never work again after that? Yeah. It seems, yeah, yeah it's made like three movies in, you know, 50 years, basically. Yeah, so they went after him. They watched the final cut of that movie, but then it just didn't go anywhere with him either. And then February 1980, this is from like Starlog magazine. You know, they were still looking for a director. The first the first draft exists, as, as I brought up earlier, which must be the Michael Uslan draft. Or I have found nothing about uh, the other uh, guy, uh, not Guy Hamilton. Um, what's his name? Maybaum writing a draft. I didn't find anything on that. So they must still have the Uslan draft at this point. And then June 1980, um, they announced what the budget's going to be. It's going to be $15 million. And they have a writer attached, W.D. Richter. 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 Richter, he, I think. Yes, him. Sorry. Uh, he Because at the time, he just wrote the remake of Dracula in 1979 and Invasion of Body Snatchers. And then fans will know he'd go on to write Big Trouble in Little China and Buckaroo Banzai. So he wrote he, the like the Sutherland Invasion of Body Snatchers? Yeah. Yeah. And the Franklin, Je- Franklin Jella. 
1979 yeah. Dracula. So yeah, he mm-hmm. was according to Starlog, he was attached in June 1980 to to be the writer. And then in July 1980, um oh yeah, so check this out. July 1980, Batman was the first movie to ever be announced at a Comic-Con. It was the first time a movie company showed up to a Comic-Con to announce a movie, and that was July 4th, 1980 in New York. And so let's move huh. on. Yeah. So November 1980, Warner Brothers again, I'm sorry, um, repeating $15 million budget, but now filming is slated for 1981 in New York City. And around this time, Adam West starts to express interest in re- revising his role as Batman. Yeah, and, I bet he was interested. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, uh, the, to be fair, Family Guy hadn't gotten greenlit yeah. yet. So <laughs> it's revival. <laughs> So we're going to move into 1981, uh, June 1981, Superman 2 comes out and it's number three of the of the year. You know, it's um, made one hundred and eight million right behind on Golden Pond and Raiders <laughs> Lost Ark. You know, <laughs> on Golden Pond, wow. Temple, Black yeah. right? <laughs> number two made one hundred and nineteen million and then Raiders made two hundred and twelve million in 1981. Crazy. Arthur was number fourth with 95, just to throw it out there, which is pretty wow. nuts too. All right. So June 1981. This is yeah. So AFI, according to them, I could not find this article and I searched the LA Examiner said Burt Reynolds was has been linked to the lead of Batman. Must be a rumor because I I I don't know. He was a huge star back yeah. then, but I, I don't know. Terrible Batman. And I like <laughs> Burt Reynolds. <laughs> I love Burt Reynolds. I would love to live in the universe where that movie came yeah, out. I'm would, not going to lie. Would, I'd be interested in seeing how that oh. goes. I mean, he was good in like cop movies, Sharky's oh, Machine and stuff oh, like that. I love Sharky's Machine. And Batman's better than a cop because he's yeah. not held back by all that red tape. Yeah. Hell yeah. Remember, remember stick. He goes to that stick. party. He puts fucking gasoline in the fucking bottle and he throws it on the guy and he's like, now say good night. And he lights the fucking match. So good. <laughs> but but Burt Reynolds in a Batmobile instead of a fucking Trans Am. Anyway, I, I, right, I have a hard time on. imagining. That. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Everyone's cringing right now. <laughs> fucking stick I mean, as Batman. I would be very excited to learn that they'd made a Batman movie with Burt Reynolds that I'd never seen that I could watch. But I know an uh, alternative universe, man. Yeah. By the way, if you haven't seen Stick, you got to see what jo- Charles Durning looks like in that movie. It's fucking nuts. All right. August 1981. Um Batman movie. Uh, oh, yeah. So people are starting to ask uh, John Peters and Peter Gruber, will Adam West be involved? And John Peters is like, who's Adam West? <laughs> and so July 1981, <laughs> Tom Mankiewicz is final. This is the first time I could see Tom Mankiewicz is finally announced with the project. And so people don't. And at the same time, Peter Gruber and Peters is just bought Vampirella to turn into a movie, which never came out. And so Tom Mankiewicz wrote The Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Live and Let Die, and Diamonds Are Forever. And what's really fucking weird is that all the people we mentioned attached so far, Guy Hamilton, um, the, uh, the other yeah, writer. James Bond. They yeah, all worked a- on Man with the Golden Gun. Well, yeah, it's funny. Mankiewicz is <laughs> super widely regarded by everyone as the best movie ever made. And yes. then Mankiewicz is James Bond and Superman related i guess also for people who don't know he is part of the minkowitz dynasty you might call it i guess now best known to uh uh, 
modern audiences because of the movie Mank, which Pat and I are not particularly huge fans oh, of. But I but he was about that Mank movie. was Tom's uncle or something. He was Tom's uncle, his, and Tom's dad was Joseph Mankiewicz, who made the uh, fantastic movie all about Eve and a gazillion other things. And then I guess sadly is also maybe most remembered by a lot of people as the director of Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor, which I guess now people don't care, you know, but that was like the disastrous over budget. The movie. Ishtar yeah, of exactly. its time. Before uh, Ishtar. That, that's a really dated reference yeah. as well. Um. Yeah. What's the new one? That, that was the John Carter of its era. Yeah. Um, I just watched uh, and Ben Mankiewicz from a TCM host. Is oh, really? Tom Mankiewicz's younger cousin. Oh, what a trip. Because Ben Winkowitz, Ben Mankowitz's grandfather was Herman Mank Mankowitz. Also, Tom Mankowitz, uh, uh, great. Uh, he was like a famous script doctor. I feel like kind of in a, in the era where people were finally starting to become aware of script doctors. Because I don't even know if he has credit on a lot of the James Bond movies he worked on. He worked on like essentially all of them. I think after Diamonds Are Forever. I wonder what the producers regarded as like his specialty. I don't know, um, but he what worked they would on, bring him in to punch up. If you look him up, like he even worked on like Gremlins and stuff. Like if you look up his like uncredited stuff, it's all these major movies. Um, but he also, I, I had not remembered until I was looking him up that he had directed the Dan Aykroyd, Tom Hanks Dragnet movie, yes, and, and the John Candy movie Delirious. Yeah, I like Delirious. Yeah. Also, I just want to go back. Ishtar is actually okay. It's just that yeah, that's yeah. the movie everyone would yeah. bring up when they're talking about giant bombs. I, I mean, like I think, that movie. I think actually. even Cleopatra's okay. Probably it was just it cost too much money. Well, <laughs> I, I I I maintain that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that money money loss making the movie money at the box office any of that really is the testament of how good yeah. a movie is the fact that regular people care about how much a movie costs it just ruined the world <laughs> <laughs> no you're right <laughs> absolutely because when when ishtar came out i just remember hearing how awful it was and i stayed away from it forever and then recently i watched it during the pandemic and i was like I mean, I like the first half better than the second half, but I really I mean, enjoyed it's it. An imperfect movie. It's not mm -hmm. a great movie that was wrongfully maligned, yeah, it was, but it's an it, it's an okay movie with some really it's good. An okay parts. movie that was yeah. maligned because it cost more than it yeah. probably should have. And I think people were turned probably turned off that Hoffman was like the stud and Beatty was kind of <laughs> like the uh, you know, like the Maybe the roles should have been reversed for people. Anyway, this is not Ishtar. So, all right, I'm going to do a quick <laughs> Superman side note. Uh, when Guy Hamilton was hired as the director for Superman, as I discussed earlier, Mario Puzo was the writer. He delivered a 500-page script for Superman and Superman 2 because they're going to turn it into two movies. And Richard Donner did not like his script at all. And so he brought in Tom Menkowitz to do a rewrite for Superman. And so that was one of the reasons why, again, besides him doing James Bond movies, he was like, oh, he also wrote Superman, but they didn't give him credit on Superman, as Josh was saying. He didn't get uh, because he has like a script a weird on it. credit on it that caused yes. like a WGA. Did he get like an additional scandal. dialogue? By it was like or creative consultant, but the WGA yes. got mad about where they wanted to place it in relation to 
the actual writing credit. I mean, a 500 page script, even for two movies, is still twice as long as it should be. Like that <laughs> 500 page script is unfilmable. What are you doing, Mario Puzo? Yeah, Mario I, I Puzo. Heard, I heard that there was a scene where Superman like um, high fives an eagle or a gull or something that's flying next to him. Like he's flying and the bird <laughs> pulls up and he's like, hey, bird, we're we're both up here, buddy. And he high fives it. I heard I, maybe that's apocryphal, but I heard that that's in one of I like to imagine it was eagly from a. <laughs> <laughs> oh man and so august 1981 it like in the newspapers uh a syracuse post adam west is frozen out of batman movie it's starting to go out there that you know maybe adam west isn't going to be in this batman film and west thinks polygram the company that was going to make it at the time is making a big mistake. And he's starting adam west is starting to say that his lawyer might take some court action and um, west you don't own batman yeah. dude <laughs> well yeah they had they said like his attorney was saying that he has right to publicity or something that they just what? can't cast it it was just you know court you know lawyers shit they were trying to pull uh, just trolling for a payout i guess probably oh, and then and so they asked John Peters, hey, can you guys put Adam West in the new Batman? Is there any, you know, is there a place that could be found for him? And Peters said, sure, we'll invite him to the premiere. <laughs> so, And then he attacked their car like in Licorice Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Oh, all right. Uh, Bradley Usla Cooper is fantastic as John Peters. Yeah, oh, is he in that? Yeah. Oh, I got to check that yeah, out. Yeah, he's playing John Peters as a complete psychopath. <laughs> oh, I got to see um, that. Which I guess, I mean, is pretty accurate to everything we ever hear about yeah. John Peters. <laughs> I've never met the man. I can't judge. He uh, seems like a cool guy to me in case yeah. his lawyers are listening. Well, John Peters is <laughs> I John love Peters him. is the only um, hairstylist slash movie producer uh, that I've heard talk about how many street fights he's gotten into. Uh, <laughs> like really? when you listen to him in interviews, he's just like, yeah, I fought this guy. I beat this guy up. I could do that's like, well, wow. Dude. That was a, speaking of a uh, uh, unmade Superman things in the uh, late, great John Schnepp's documentary, the death of Superman lives. One of my favorite parts in that <laughs> is when some concept artist is talking about how John Peters would come to their office and start like trying to wrestle them for no reason. <laughs> but then they cut to John Peters also talking about it. He's like, you know, like, yeah, I thought it was like a good, you know, morale booster. Get everybody, <laughs> you know, like, you expect him to deny it or whatever. But now he was just like, yeah, yeah, he showed up at the office and wanted to wrestle the concept artist. Like the what you do as a producer. Sketch. Yeah, He's exactly. Like, I didn't, I wasn't grinding my boots on his couch. I was drying my boots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of does have that uh, Chappelle show <laughs> or uh, what was it? Charlie Murphy's stories. That was right. From Chappelle. <laughs> anyway, brilliant. Enough about John Peters. All right. Nine, uh, October 1981. Uh, Uslan was just throwing out there. He thinks the costume villains, such as the Joker, Riddler, and Catwoman, can be portrayed properly if they combine them with real life gangsters you know just trying to again separate it from the 60s show and he also was denying claim that sir lawrence olivier was approached to play alfred that was a false rumor and at the same time um, adam west is saying he has 10 projects in the worst in the in the works <laughs> and one of them is called superbat and it's currently looking for financing and uh... <laughs> superbat's about a man that can transform himself into a giant bat 
And uh, later on, he would go and say that um, when it was clear I'd never get the film rights to the Batman character, uh, Superbat was a hybrid Batman and Superman who came from another galaxy. But now he lives in this vast cave, you know, just pure fantasy. And also at the same time, he he pitched to DC Comics a Broadway play called A Night in Wayne Manor, which could have been a musical, but they didn't. They yeah, weren't into it. That. <laughs> I mean, if you were going to make a Batman musical, here's my note. Just put the word Batman in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, November 16th, 1981. I haven't found this anywhere else, but the newspapers that Richard Donner was uh, attached to direct Batman with a 1982 production start date. I Which mean, makes, that would make a ton of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Sense. Yeah, I agree. And that was when he was on fire, right? I mean, mm-hmm. oh, he was throughout the 80s. He was on fire. But all right. And 19, now we're into 1982. Uh, Gruber and Peters left Polygram Pictures and they set up at Warner Brothers. And Warner Brothers finally decides to accept Batman. Like, has Warner Brothers owned, like, they've owned DC Comics for a long, long time. Do you have any idea if they owned DC Comics already at that point? I'm not sure. I I started getting confused with all, because to tell the audience, I usually am able to, like, go to, like, the cinema library to do research. And I have, I could look through Hollywood Reporters, Varieties, all kinds of shit. But it's still closed and all my research lately is red tape. Yeah. (laughs) Like newspapers (laughs) and star logs and old magazines. And I'm like, it's been killing me, you know, because I loved, I love to have dates and all this stuff, but um, I wish I could have looked more into that, but I'm like, but like we're, I was saying earlier that DC had a chance to take it in the seventies when Uslan just bought the rights and they just didn't want it. They didn't want any. Yeah. yeah. yeah, Warner brothers didn't want it. They didn't want any non Superman movies. So, but now when Peters and Gruber go over there, Warner brothers is with them attached and probably with all their hits because around this time, you know, Peters also did Caddyshack, which was a huge movie, you know, American Whale from London, which did well. So now they're kind of on fire. So Warner Brothers probably, you know, now it finally accepted it. And um, and also in May in 1982, again, Adam West is like telling the newspapers he doesn't think he's out of the running yet to be in Batman. And then in December 1982, again, Adam West is like telling the Gazette that uh, producers are flirting with disaster if they don't seek him for the role. You know, people want to see him in that role again, you know. And then in December 1982, Adam West again tells the newspapers that he submitted a bat line, a Batman outline to Warner Brothers. And then later he on wrote himself. Yeah. He oh, my wrote God. Him. I wish well, we he, had that. Well, yeah. he, he told Rolling Stone that it was about Later on, when Batman came out, there was a big Rolling Stone article about uh, Batman. He said it was about Bruce Wayne had basically retired to his ranch in New Mexico after having cleaned up Gotham City. Most of the major villains were in madhouses or penitentiaries. So he invented a new supervillain called Sun Yat Mars. And he continued to and he conspired to spring all the villains out on one horrible stormy night making them his minions. And then at the same time, he was kidnapping college kids from all over the world and then um, taking them to a zombie satellite 
mm-hmm. which was very which was very alien looking like the movie alien and they uh they filed up in long lines into these terrible machines that sucked their brains out and then um, the picture would have opened with Bruce and his girlfriend riding horses in the moonlight. And they came across a mutated cow's carcass surrounded by surrounded by burned grass. You don't know whether or not a spaceship might have been involved. It's very mysterious, he said. Meanwhile, Dick Grayson has become a singing medical intern somewhere. He's chasing nurses around with his guitar. The Bruce Springsteen of Mercy Hospital. <laughs> We, we, we reunite and end up conquering all the, all those guys again. That was his, uh, his, uh, his pitch for a Batman movie. I'd watch it. <laughs> <laughs> so all right. I mean, later when Bane broke all the criminals out of, out of uh, Arkham and Blackgate at once, they were clearly ripping off this Adam West. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. And then again, at the end of 1982, um, now the production is pushed to 1983 and uh, now we are in June, 1983 and Mankiewicz finally submits his first draft from the time, I think 1981 was nice said when he was first attached. He oh might've been God, attached. I can't early. even imagine um, turning in a script so late. I feel like everyone would kill us <laughs> like two years. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't know. I mean, everything is so crazy back then. Who knows what happened, but um, all right, I'll get into the other stuff after we get into his first, that's the first draft was turned in. Um, was it June 20th, 1983? We have two of his drafts here, right? Josh, yeah, you them both. They're almost exactly the same. Like this is definitely okay. one of those instances where I was like, what did he get paid for this second draft? Cause again, <laughs> we'd be killed if we turned in a second draft that was, I mean, it is like no words change except for in the couple scenes that are different and there's hardly any differences. Uh, like this really, this really feels like a, like kind of last second tweak more than another draft. So I'll note the minor differences when we get to them, but they're essentially nothing. So uh, when Ed, you read this one as well. Yeah. I read the first draft at least. So yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, they're basically the same except for one villain difference which is ultimately pretty cosmetic even then uh i guess even just starting off ed what did you think i i I don't know if i'd say i liked this one but i definitely would have enjoyed this movie if it had existed in the 80s uh well we'll we'll get into it as the story progresses but (laughs) i just hate how we it, it starts out like Man, I'm trying. To, it's you know what it's like. This script is like that classic meme of the drawing of a horse, and the head and the mane are beautiful oh, yeah. and wonderfully shaded. And as it gets towards the end, meaning the deadline, it just starts to become scribbles. <laughs> yeah, because they just start forcing it, like Robin appearing in like the third act. You know what I mean? It just just all this stuff. And but I also noticed one thing, uh, and maybe you pulled this out, but. There's this um, eidetic memory thing that they give Batman. It's very subtle, but it's very pointed in that it seems like anything Batman or Bruce Wayne puts his mind to do, he does it super expertly. So like he's like a, a teenager and a girl comes up to him and says, you never seem to have any time for fun. You need to chill out. And so he so she tells him she kisses him and gives him her number. He memorizes her number super instantly 
calls her and then they have sex that night or whatever. And she goes, how did you learn how to do all that stuff? And he's like, anything I set my mind to do, I could just do it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> you know, no, that's definitely uh, I don't know if I'd say it's a theme of the movie. Well, we'll just get into it. So uh, this one tonally uh, and, we'll, you know, this will present itself. Ed is entirely right that this, especially this first draft before they make a villain tweak in the second draft is very overstuffed. Tonally, I would say, uh, even though there are a couple moments that, again, that even like lift things from the Usland script, which is bizarre, thinking of like the rights involved with that draft. But Usland's um, still attached as one of the producers at this point, isn't he? Oh, he's all the way through. Okay, so that makes But I would say this has more of the tone of like an animated series where it's like it's mm-hmm. it's still kind of serious but also like kind of goofy but anyway so this begins with uh in the past alfred is cleaning we're in wayne manor we see a campaign poster that says dr thomas wayne for city council a better tomorrow for gotham so we know that bruce's dad is uh trying to get into politics bruce wayne is 10 we meet him down in his lab that he has Thomas goes down there, sees Bruce, but that Bruce turns out to be a hologram because Bruce is that big of a super genius at 10 that he's invented his own hologram. He's like Reed Richards levels. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Martha's down there. Ha ha ha. They all have some fun. They're going to go see a movie, which in this is Audrey Hepburn's The Nun's Story. Um, Why the hell would that be the movie? well, that was what I was going to ask. When did because it's the mark of Zorro, right? That has become the more that's, that's kind, kind of, of the classic thing they've seen, or sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah, it being like it was, you know, they were seeing and they went to the new Bev to see an old movie, The Mark of Zorro. Yeah, yeah. Often, you know, they don't but when did that? that but do you, you guys know <laughs> when that appeared in the comics because it feels like that must have appeared after this because they keep changing what movie it is the first times that i recall seeing it i think were in it may have been in the 70s or something but i for me it was in the 80s when it's consistent in both frank miller projects that redefine batman i.e batman year one and dark knight and it's i think it's it stems from this weird obsession that all these scripts seem to have these later scripts now that we're into this next period they seem to have this obsession with like Batman had to be inspired by something. It wasn't just a bat coming in on a statue. There has to be this underlying element of he loved swashbuckling and he loved the guy with a castle under his, you know what I mean? They're trying to make some lineage yeah. that Batman is But it's funny because the other one was from here to eternity, which I feel like maybe he just like looked at a calendar of like, what was a movie that would have been out in mm-hmm. this year? Which I guess maybe is the same thing with the nun story, but it's it, like it's definitely weird from here to eternity has some action in it, and is uh, this is more just like it? It's so random. I guess I don't even know why they specify what movie they're seeing. Like it just seems like they went to a movie. Who cares? It doesn't. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant. I mean, I guess uh, they're wearing uh, black cloaks like Superman because they're nuns. But you know, whatever. All the standard stuff. Joe Chill shows up tries to rob them, kills his parents. This has the element, though, that Bruce is so overcome with rage staring at Joe Chill that mm-hmm. Joe Chill becomes frightened. You know, Joe Hill's or Chill's gun hand suddenly starts to tremble incredibly. The savage face of this young boy has unnerved him, and he's like, stop 
looking at me like that kid and like runs off. We and reveal that I've seen in old comics. Yeah. Okay. Like Bruce's piercing eyes, freaking him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reveal there's like a shadowy figure who's been watching all this from a window who very quickly after it's one of those things where I don't even know why they bothered to have them cloaked in shadow. Like it's going to be some big movie long mystery when then just mere pages later, we reveal that was the Joker. The Joker was the one watching and clearly had hired uh, Joe chill. The Joker has kind of a fun intro uh, with like a newsman kind of the relevant plot stuff. And the other big, uh, relevant character, which I guess Steve, Steve, you were noting that they wanted to introduce an element of like grounded real criminals. Um, is Rupert Thorne? Does anyone want to give a little background on Rupert Thorne for listeners who don't know who he is? I mean, I first encountered him on the animated, animated series. Show, and he yeah. was just like the the mafioso head of Gotham. I almost thought he was original to the animated series, but this indicated to me that he is clearly not. Uh, yeah. must have been from the comics somewhere around this era. Well, uh, Thorn, but- Thorn, Boss Grissom. There's always this weird politician-y type of person that's clued in with the gangs. And But these days they've transferred that to like just a regular mob boss like Falcone or whatever because yeah. of the long, the, long, uh, the long Halloween and stuff like that. Uh, but I guess at this point in the script, if you don't know who Rupert Thorne is, you don't know the twist that he's going to turn out to clearly to be evil. But uh, I did. So it's obvious. But at this point, he was just another guy who was running against Bruce Wayne or Thomas running Wayne. For City Thomas Council. Wayne. Yeah. So like on the new like his like, he'll make our streets safe again. And he has a line of like, you know, I didn't want to win like this, not through tragedy. But it's cruelly ironic that a good man like Thomas Wayne, who spoke up so forcefully for the rights of criminals, again, this kind of post-Dirty Harry idea, Mm. for the rights of criminals should himself become the ultimate victim. Uh, And then we have a scene to read here involving uh, the Joker and Joe Chill. Um, Let's see here. Who? uh, Let's see. uh, Ed, why don't you be Rupert Thorne, Pat? You be Joe Chill. I will be Joker. Okay, and uh, the thor- the thorn. Th- where are we starting at? At the we'll campaign start for exterior ca- campaign headquarters. Day. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Wait, where is that exterior? It's just the first page. Oh, right there. Okay, yeah, I got gotcha. you. A throng <laughs> right. of reporters and TV remote units. Uh, oh, sorry, I already kind of read some of this. So actually, let's maybe skip down to interior Joker's lair. This was mm-hmm. Thorn on the news. Uh, was saying that thing I just (laughs) read out loud. Interior Joker's Lair Day. A huge room garishly decorated in a clown motif. The wallpaper is one contiguous deck of cards. There are Harlequin chairs, jesters, an open jack-in-the-box, etc. A man sits in a chair at the end of the room, facing away from the camera. He watches Thorn on a TV set. But his... uh... This but his murder on the TV, yeah, yeah, and he's continuing his talk about uh Thomas getting murdered. But his murderer will be caught and executed, I promise you. It's time the scum of our society see what we mean when we have to have law and order on the streets of Gotham City. Suddenly, the set goes mute. The man in the chair swivels around slowly. It is Joe Chill. The Joker stands at the entrance of the room, lowers a remote control box. He grins at Chill. Chill stares back nervously, clearly frightened by the Joker's maniacal presence. I was uh, headed for the airport. They said you wanted to see me? Something wrong? Wrong? I thought we'd celebrate. I thought you'd like to join me in a drink. (sighs) Why not? 
The Joker leads him to a table, suddenly glowers darkly. You know, I'm disappointed in you, Joe. Very disappointed. You, you are? I said, would you like to join me for a drink? Then you're supposed to say, sure, there'll be room enough for the both of us. <laughs> get it? Room enough? <laughs> yeah, sure. I get it now. Your quick study, Joe. The Joker claps him on the back as they sit at the table. The Confederate, the Confederate, yeah, wait. The Confederate enters with two, oh, a Confederate. There's a lot of typos in these uh, Tom Winkowitz drafts, by the way. Uh, the Confederate and a Confederate enters with two glasses on a tray, one container, a clear liquid, the other, a bilious, thick yellow concoction. The Joker edges it across the table towards Chill, who eyes it suspiciously. Drink up. Chill examines the yellow liquid. Wary. Uh, how come uh, you ain't drinking this? Good question. I think lemonade. He takes it from Chill, hands him the clear liquid. They both down their jinks drinks the joker giggles insanely <laughs> what's what's so funny man walks into a doctor's office says are you the doctor's nurse she says yes he says oh is the doctor sick <laughs> the joker slams the table with glee out of control no offense joker but that's not very chill stops the corners of his mouth twitch they rise involuntarily he's Snickers, again, starts to giggle. The Joker's eyes narrow. His smile becomes cruel. The doctor says, I can cure you. The disease is hereditary. The patient says, then send the bill to my father. Chills, explodes with laughter. He says, help me, doctor. I've got amnesia. Doctor says, how long have you had it? He says, how long have I had what? Chills <laughs> on his feet now, convulsed in glee. He sinks to his knees, out of control, then collapses to the floor. <laughs> this one will dead. kill you. I just got back from a pleasure trip. I drove my mother-in-law to the airport. <laughs> Where Chills dead? <laughs> but seriously, folks. So that's some yep. uh, Joker action there. And okay, then this- and just can I just interject one thing? I fucking hate this i i fucking hate this part when i was reading the screenplay it took me out of the whole thing because i was like okay number one joe chill murdering the guy with joker overhead or something is whack and but but i can understand it on some level but then the joker killing joe chill denying us this batman's closure thing that they're always in the comics in the comics he always catches joe chill years later confronts him and goes uh, I'll kill you. And, he, and then he realizes at that point he has his code or maybe he's about to kill Joe Chill, but then he's rescued from himself by Joe Chill dying. Yeah, know? Joe Chill like, has a heart attack of fright usually. Yeah, stuff like that. And and that's was, like, yeah. There was at least one story where Joe Chill was still alive and Joe and Batman had to like team up to take down the Reaper and Batman year two. Yeah. Well, so this mm-hmm. is a weird... This but is this is also when Bruce is still a kid, right? This is like yes, right after yes. Thomas is mm-hmm. okay. uh, And this is the weirdest change that's in the second draft. Because in the second draft, the scene begins with Joe Chill. Joker gives Joe Chill the money he owes him. And then Joe Chill leaves. And then that uh, you know confederate who walks in with the drinks is a character named Humphrey, who Joker, that the scene is all the same word for word. But Joker does that whole poisoning bit to his own sidekick, Humphrey, for like no particular reason. 
And then Does we Jim never, Jill then come back later? No, we never see him again. Uh, so I don't know what the point of that change was exactly, but uh, again, it's the very weird second draft where he really didn't change anything. So I hope they didn't pay him too much for it. I felt like it should have just been, hey, can you make these quick changes tonight? Sure, whatever. Um <laughs> Anyway, so then we're still in the past. Uh, Bruce is dedicating himself to becoming awesome. We, there's like a pretty lengthy, again, it makes sense that these this was coming directly after Superman, which for those who don't remember, uh, it's 45 minutes in the original Superman before we ever get to Christopher Reeve. Like it's a very slow burn, detailed setup. So I'm assuming they were kind of following that same logic because we get lots of pages of Bruce learning multiple languages, becoming a karate master. He's taking ballet. Uh, and it's not like a mo- training montage where we're just seeing like clips, like they're actual scenes. Cause like in the ballet thing, you know, it's like a joke of some girl being like, you know, the guys make fun of you for doing this. And Bruce makes some witty crack about how some one guy did or whatever, meaning that he, you know, kicked the shit out of him and no one <laughs> made fun of him again. Um, there's a whole scene where he has an arrow shooting machine <laughs> so he can practice catching arrows, but we're witnessing it when he's not that great at it yet. And he has like a bulletproof vest that they're just, you know, sticking into. Um, there's a whole scene at his graduation where they note he has eight athletic letters, captain of, captain of five teams, you know, your class valedictorian, Bruce Wayne. Uh, and this leads into what, uh, Ed I was kind really of pictured saying, him going to like a normal high school at all. And well, you know, uh, maybe like a, a normal prep school. But yeah. uh, as Ed noted kind of earlier that there's a character, Sid, Cindy, who comes up and is like flirting with him and noting that he's so busy and never has any time for fun. <laughs> um, and then he's kind of like, huh, maybe wait. he's getting a ride home from Alfred and looks over and sees like a Ferrari or something. And is like, you know what? maybe I don't ever have any fun. And then we cut to, he now has a Ferrari and he's with Cindy on the beach and they're totally banging to the point where she's like, I don't think I can walk. (laughs) Where'd you learn all that? And this goes back to what Ed was also saying. It's just the idea that he's fucking awesome at everything, including fucking. Uh, (laughs) She's like, where'd you learn all to do that last? Where did you learn? Where did you learn to do all that here? Last night, it's strange, but once I get the hang of something, <laughs> I just can't seem to stop. Wait, does that mean <laughs> that he brought another chick who wasn't Cindy to the same spot the night before, or was it just Cindy two nights in a row? No, I think it was oh, her. He learned this that, is like yeah, the, mo- sorry, the morning. Oh, I see. Him, they're on the beach oh, in the morning with sun with the sun up he with the Ferrari in the background. Studied, studied Bonin with an ancient master in the, <laughs> high in the Himalayas. <laughs> I studied with John Holmes. No, yeah. I, 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 but basically one, one thing I noted just real quick, right bef- about two pages before the scene we're talking about right here, he's fighting a black belt in karate and he does the move and picks the black belt up over his head basically and slams him on the ground and in in his leverage to grab him up he pulled off the bl- the black belt's black belt and uh and he goes to hand it back to him and a guy goes no you keep it and like that's how we know that <laughs> that he has a I black like that. belt that's a good it's bit. a nice scene i just wanted to note it it's it's, it's cute well and it's interesting that they spend so much time on all this so it, this this essentially montage but like, you know, many page montages has like movements because 
yeah, that was all from his training. I'm becoming awesome. And now we have another whole montage where he was like, I, you know, like book smart or whatever, you know, the movie where he's like, I wasted my life being a nerd <laughs> time to bang chicks and be awesome. And we see him racing against Mario Andretti and beating him. Uh, there's a whole scandal where, uh, a miss gotham has like a paternity suit against him for being like you know you're the you're my the father of my baby but he and he's like i am not the father and he wins the paternity suit which you know i feel like is presented as though he's not the father but you know i'm also like well he's a billionaire he probably just scammed the system that was his kid <laughs> fucked over that poor woman well that, um, you don't see his master plan of making that kid an orphan that he yeah. can adopt later you know he's just keeping these stashing these orphans all over the place uh, uh this they you know iron man basically stole the the bit from this where there's a female port- reporter who wants to interview him and then we cut to you know the next day and he's boned her uh, but then so this is really dedicated to demonstrating that Batman is not a virgin like everyone else assumed. <laughs> uh, oh, very much. Uh, uh, the ladies can't walk after he's done with them. This movie, I, I feel like, like way uh, Christian Bale, that Batman, he was a virgin, right? What do you think? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but but then, oddly enough, then this also leads into like character growth. Because she had been, you know, much again, like in Iron Man, where, you know, she's kind of critical of him, but then can't resist boning him anyway. Uh, But while she is passed out from their rigorous boning, can't bother to be awake anymore. He is like standing around listening to the tape recording of their earlier interview in which he just sounds like a jackass and has like an existential crisis about what has become of his life. Uh, and that he's been wasting his talents. Uh, um, I like to imagine remembering this, like, oh, that guy gave me his black belt, and here I am wasting my potential. Yeah, before the big training montage, did he make a vow to spend his life warring on all criminals, or does he just start training immediately? Uh, he looked kind of, yeah, he makes a vow, basically. Okay, okay. Um, and then, so now we enter his, like, I'm going to start fighting crime, uh, he fights some bikers who were mugging basically him and his family, a married couple and their like little kid. And he takes out all the bikers. Uh, but then it's still not quite enough. And he goes back down to his lab that we saw at the beginning of the movie, which they imply he has not been in basically since his parents die and accidentally triggers the hologram of himself that 10 year old Bruce had invented. So he's like faced with his own 10 year old image um let's wait oh and and real quick in a total misapprehension of what lasers are or what they do i doesn't the laser hit a piece of of molding or whatever and show him his secret lair yep it exposes the bat cave and so you know we kind of go through all the stuff we're used to seeing you know him discovering the bat cave and seeing the bats uh, he's like, now for the first time, I realize I must be more than a man. <laughs> um, uh, then we got another scene to read here. That's his first like official Batman uh, scene. Let's see if we can open that back up. Batmankowitz. Uh, subway, is, subway car. Yeah, so this will begin with interior subway station. Um, let's see here. Uh Pat, you can be Batman, who in this scene is just described as voice. Uh, okay. Ed, why don't you be thug? I will be boy. Pat, 
you can oh no i i think thug and truck driver no it's like steve you be truck driver type i think he only has one line um all right i think we cast everything here all right so interior gotham subway station night an express train roars through a seedy subway station interior subway car night a well-scrubbed teenage couple sit together holding hands the boy is dressed in a dinner jacket the girl a chiffon party dress with a prominent orchid corsage pinned to it they exchange a nervous glance looking across the car at a tough looking thug who sits opposite them, his muscular arms bulging through a torn windbreaker. I'd forgotten he was wearing a windbreaker. <laughs> uh, he grins across at the nervous teenagers, menacingly exposing yellow teeth, then sneaks a sideways glance at a thickly built truck driver type who stares straight ahead. These are the only four people in the car. The subway slows to the next stop. The truck driver type rises disinterestedly, crosses the car, looks down at the teenagers who are none too happy with his departure. Have a nice time at the prom, kids. Uh, yes, thank you, sir. The subway doors hiss open. The truck driver type smiles and exits. The teenagers look across the car, worried. The car pulls out of the station. The thug rises, crosses the car, grabs hold of a vertical pole to steady himself, smirks down at the teenagers. You smell good enough to eat, sweetheart. If you've got something to say, mister, talk to me, okay? I was talking to you, <laughs> sweetheart. The knife drops out of the thug's sleeves into his hand, its razor-sharp blade glinting in the light. The teenagers freeze with terror. Maybe it's that flower that smells so good. The thug plucks the corsage off the trembling girl's body. Nice read, Ed. Uh, holds it up to his nose, inhales deeply, shaking his head. Nope, still can't place it. Buddy, I can smell you from way over here. The thug wheels, stares off at the end of the car, his jaw, drop it, his jaw dropping open. The teenager's eyes bulge in disbelief, close on chest. A golden circle with a black figure of a bat sits in the middle of a steel gray skin-tight fabric stretched across a massively muscular, muscled chest. Give the lady back her flower. Back to the scene, the thug looks... His, where the thug looks his unseen adversary up and down cautiously, unsure whether to laugh or obey. Okay, sure. Just wanted to have a little fun. I... Yeah. With a sudden lightning move, he flips the switchblade in his hand, sending it whizzing in the direction of the voice. Close on knife. The knife whistles through the air towards camera. Suddenly, a black-gloved hand miraculously snatches it out of the air, spinning it, then sending it flying back. The switchblade, switchblade pierces the corsage, jerking it out of the thug's hand, sticking it into the wall where it quivers behind him. The thug freezes, turning white. Now then, I think you said you wanted to have a little fun. Exterior subway station night. The express train wheezes to a stop at the station. A middle-aged couple wait for the doors to open, then enter the car. They suddenly stop, staring in amazement. The thugs stand spread-eagled in the middle of the car, both wrists cuffed, uh, both wrists cuffed to an overhanging metal uh, hanging up above. The center vertical pole disappears up one, one of his pant legs, finally reappearing out the collar of his shirt. I'm not sure how Batman pulled that off. Yeah, he uh, had to like take this dude's clothes all off. <laughs> Dude, the thing with the pants is literally impossible. <laughs> I mean, that's like the classic Simpsons joke where Grandpa, they ask Grandpa Simpsons what his name is and it's written on his underwear and he just pulls them out of his pants. And they're like, Grandpa, how did you pull off your underwear without taking your pants off? 
I don't know, or whatever. Anyway, the teenage boy passes the amazed couple, confidently dusting his hands. He reaches back for the girl who sniffs her corsage, then follows him out of the car. I like that Batman can just catch a knife because he trains so hard. Like With one the thing, arrow like, gun that we established you know, earlier. Yeah most of the Batman movies we've gotten have like forgotten or like just don't even include basically that he's like the world's greatest martial artist. It's more about that. He has like an armored suit in gizmos. Like he's more like Iron Man, but to me, Batman's a ninja. That's what he yeah, was. And, when it, I was and in this one, they very much established that he's got, uh, got well, all and, the skills. And, yeah, and this is kind of, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, this is kind of before martial arts really took over. We only had like Chuck Norris movies. This is a few years before <laughs> show, like Billy show Kasuki like movies. What, uh, martial before, arts were off. Before, yeah. As we established in our Spider-Man series before Menachem Golem kept trying to work ninjas <laughs> yeah. into the Spider-Man Absolutely. movies. I, I just, my, my only aside at this is I just love how in, in trying to make Batman seem as though this, he's this super ninja that can appear anywhere. They set him up to have done some really stupid stuff to get to the position where he's ninjing up from. Like he was on that train for <laughs> like an hour, two hours, probably. It's what crumpled up under a chair <laughs> under one of the seats Ninja-ing. or something. And the, like, you know what I'm saying? Someone's gonna do something shitty on here. <laughs> and the teenage kid, like being like, you know, like he just beat up this this goon. That does feel like a funny touch. Like it feels like out of Superman 78 kind of, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, no, that's great. That's right up there. Sunny Jim, that's a bad outfit. That, that, yeah, that's I'm just thinking great, about it. Great bit. Yeah. Um, all right. We are going to hit pause there and continue the conversation in our next episode in our series of unmade Batman movies. Right off the bat, Steve and I would like to thank Dwayne Nguyen, who was critical in providing a lot of the material we are discussing on this series. So thank you, sir. Um, and thanks to Ed and Pat. Uh, Pat, uh, what can we see of your material soon or now? Well, check out Sonic 2, but also check out Hey, Stop Stabbing Me, the classic indie movie that you and I made 20 years ago, Josh. There's a wow, a 20-year anniversary digitally remastered version with tons of bonus features from Severin Films. So Google that shit. Watch Sonic. Thank you. Uh, Ed, how about you? Uh, just check me out at Grid Destroys on Twitter and uh, reboot it, uh, reboot it channel on YouTube. And uh, of course, uh, Nerd Goat Podcast is the Twitter home for the greatest pod, which you can get on all pod platforms. And you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. Also, check out the Electric Now app where you can watch a video of all our podcast episodes for free. Thank you to everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Stephen Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.